know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. We are here to talk with you about the paranormal, as we do each and every Saturday night. And, of course, you know, it's coming up on the, the paranormal season, we can say. It's coming up on Halloween time, which uh, to us is like Christmas. Only we don't get gifts. Ho, ho, ho. We get candy, though. One time, yeah. yeah. When We celebrate it for like two months, but we get one day of candy. I think we should just be able to get candy every day. I'm all for the, those in the paranormal who want to celebrate like two months of Halloween. Just start knocking on people's doors, wearing masks, yeah. asking for candy. I think uh, is it that panhandling? Or, no. I don't know. It might. It I might be. Are there. I know there's laws, laws against vagrancy. Right? I don't know if there's laws against panhandling. <laughs> as long as you're wearing a mask, though, I guess you could currently, you know, you you could say you're currently employed as a professional impersonator of whatever it is you're being. I guess it all depends on how you ask. That's true. If you like, if you like, even some candy. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, you you might not be able to do that, but I think if you like, pardon me, kind sir, I know it is not yet the Halloween holiday, but <laughs> as I am a paranormal person, I like to celebrate it for two months. With that in mind, could you please spare a small piece of chocolate? <laughs> yeah, it's going to take off. It's going. This is the new Halloween season. It's going to take off. But uh, we will be here next week as well to talk uh, with you. And then come October, if the Red Sox make the playoffs, things are going to get kind of shifted around a little bit. And I can see a lot of 8 o'clock games in their future. So maybe we can get in here from like 6 to 7.30, do primetime episodes. Because you know when we do a primetime episode, it works out well for everybody because you, you, know, you get to talk a little paranormal and then have the rest of your night ahead of you. As opposed to now when we talk about this stuff and then you can't sleep for the rest of the night because you're scared. Of course, there's no reason to be scared. We're not talking about scary stuff, except tonight. UFO abductions, then and now. The history of UFO abductions, starting with the Betty and Barney Hill case and going all the way up till today with our guests. Uh, in the first hour, we're going to talk to Kathleen Marden, who is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. We'll talk to her about that case and how that kind of kicked off the whole idea of these UFO abductions, I mean, I'm sure they were happening before Matt Moniz, but it, yeah. it just wasn't as widely reported in the media. Correct. I mean, can you think of maybe what might be the earliest instance of a UFO abduction that you've heard? I mean, people argue there are plenty of reports in the Bible and other holy books and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I mean, it all depends upon what way you want to view it, what, what really is an abduction, so... But at least with the, the Hill case, we can point to some of these factors it as is being... the most documented modern case, mm -hmm. yes. And then similar themes are seen in a lot of the abductions that have happened since as well. Correct. So, And we'll cover the, the and now part 
of UFO abductions later on with Dr. David Jacobs making his first appearance here on Spooky South Coast. We're very excited about that. And then in between, we're going to talk to uh, a friend of yours as well. Yeah, Mr. Joe Prindle. Uh, he'll be out in a place called Eminence, Kentucky. It's out in uh, Henry County. Uh, apparently, there over the past week or so, there's been a serious flap, and even the state director has been out to this place and gotten, you know, a whole digital camera full worth of uh, photographs. And and we in the week and weird, we'll talk about a possible reason why there might be all these UFOs that have been showing up, not just in Kentucky, but apparently worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. It's just going to be an action-packed night here tonight, as we try to always make it. Uh, but if you have any questions or any thoughts about the night's discussions, you can always give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, get a hold of us all week long on the web, SpookySouthCoast.com, where we eventually put up all of our past episodes. We're working on getting those caught up, man, because we, we're, we're going to be so inundated with stuff coming up soon. Uh, I know we're making like a 100 different little presentations here and there, uh, but just to let everybody know about them ahead of time, let's see. Get uh, get them written down. You'd think I'd remember since I have to be there. But <laughs> on uh, Monday, October twentieth, we're going to be presenting a, a special uh, event at the Wareham Historical Society at the Old Methodist Meeting House on four ninety five Main Street. That's at seven p.m. And uh, tickets to that are two dollars for non-members. All the money goes to help support the Wareham Historical Society, and uh, they really need it for some of the projects that they have planned. We've got a big investigation coming up this week. Can't really yep. talk about it on the air because we don't want people showing up. It's a place I've always wanted to do ever since living in the town. And and having been in there with Matt Costa the other day and, and getting an idea. Because I, I, I see it every single day in my life Yeah, for many hours. And I've always felt, you know, it's a little bit creepy and a little bit strange. And I'd never been in there. When I got in there and I realized not only just what it's like and how it operates as a museum – but I started to see some of the structure of the building, and I started to see, okay, now I'm starting to see a lot of factors that could really help activity, you know, foster, really foster activity. So now I'm thinking it's just going to be a treasure trove. And then to find out Mike Markowitz is coming down with all of his EVP equipment, it's just going to be a crazy night. And we'll talk about uh, everything that we find at that presentation to the Wareham Historical Society on Monday, October 20th. If you'd like more information, 508-273-0069. And then we just recently uh, agreed to appear at the new border store in Wareham on uh, Friday, October 24th. We'll talk a lot about the similar stuff as we're going to talk there, uh, but we'll also kind of give people a, a paranormal primer. I know Borders is really interested in doing a lot of different paranormally themed events, not just in the Halloween season, but all year round. So, Well, we can definitely help them out. Yeah, we're very appreciative of the opportunity. I was in there today. Strolling around, and I found Chris Balzano's Ghost of the Bridgewater Triangle. And then I found a whole bunch of books from people that we've never had on the show. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, maybe this is a, a potential guest here. Of course, I didn't buy the books because I didn't have that much money on me. But we'll get a hold of them. We'll find out who these people are and what their story is. There was even a book called Haunted Massachusetts, not mm. written by Tom D'Agostino. So <laughs> he may have a lawsuit on his hands. No. Well, let's take this phone call really quick before we go to the commercial break and then we'll bring on Kathleen Martin and just a few Hi, more. I enjoy your program very much. Thank you very much. And uh, first time I've uh, tuned in and I couldn't help but um, get a reflection just a tad. Um, I don't know if you're familiar and I'm sure if you are into what I think you are um, 
that perhaps you saw a movie with Christopher Reeves once back in time? Yes. I'm Some, familiar with the movie. Somewhere in time? Is that? Yeah, I, I know the movie mm-hmm. she's referring to. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, but Matt Moniz has. And it deals with the penny at the end? So you are familiar with it? Yes, I am familiar with the movie. You noticed that when he had something from the other world... Referring to the penny, yes. He reverted yes. back. Yes. I was somewhat obsessed with this movie. Okay. And maybe you could help me to have a put a clarity on it. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I hate the fact that I'm on the airwaves, but in order to get the powers that be, if need be, it has occurred to me. Um, this doing about, this has in occurred. In February, okay. I sustained a severe accident. Sorry to hear that. Okay, I'm fine. Uh, with a spinal injury. Uh, I could have been like Christopher Reeves. I could have been in the wheelchair for Mm -hmm. the rest of my life. But somehow I overcame that. I guess what I'm trying to find, is there some kind of correlation? Was there some kind of warning that I would... I mean, there aren't too many movies that uh, bother me one way or another. Mm -hmm. And there's some movies that I will see over and over again. But that one, I'd always feel like I knew every, everyone. And, uh, you know, I, I felt so bad. And I could relate to him going back in time, him flipping uh, the penny over, trying to hold on to a love that and a life that he couldn't find here in the 21st century, that he just wanted to go back and be with her. And uh, I didn't see it for myself in that way, but his his demise, as time went down the pike, you could see that he became sick and he passed away and, and all these things. And then I, I, I found myself feeling somewhat like that, and I said, was it because I saw the movie that this happened? Was it a warning of some kind? Well, Should I, I have uh, appreciated a little bit what I had? I mean, there's, there's... I don't know. There's different ways of looking at it. I mean, some people will say, you know, if you're familiar with something, uh, and you had said earlier, you know, you use the word obsessed, but if if you have seen, say, a movie again and again, you know, it's like if I tell you don't think about green cars, oh, then all day long you're going to think of green cars. Or okay. see them. Or, no, I take it that you are the powers that be. Do you see something in that that would be any correlation of how I would even relate in any? Well, I mean, I'm not in the wheelchair. I I do have a um, a spinal fracture. Okay, um, it's um, in the two category. I've done miraculously well. I walk ten miles a day, but the pain is there. Wow. The breakage is there. They did Where want to operate. The break? I refused. I'm a strong person. I overcame. And, okay, that's fine and well. But I just, I mean, I, I, I heard your program for the first time, and I said, okay, it's a bunch of hogwash, it's a bunch of bunk, but is it really? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I, I can say, I, 
I mean, the other. No, I want to go out and do everything that I can possibly do for any spinal injured person. So this has empowered you. Yes. Then that's not a I bad thing. I will volunteer. I, I mean, will work. I will do whatever. Whether it's bunk or not, it's still like. empowered you. Uh, if you look at it that way, the end result is what. What is it? Point here. I mean, how you got there is, you know, tragic in some cases. You know, the way people would look at it, but mm-hmm. in in all, you've come out of it ahead. I so, uh, so I think you should look, you know, at the mm-hmm. positive aspect of it and not try and, you know, second guess where this power has come from, but be thankful that you've gotten it. Absolutely. You know, granted, you know, it's a tragic thing, and we're sorry that, you know, you had to go through such an event. Well, when there's people like yourself that are out there that are willing to look at it from every gamut, I, I think it makes me a little okay. Okay. Can I ask a question, though? Yes. Now, you, you know how the movie you referred to is a person that, you know, is using their psyche to go back in time and then it's a love story and then comes back. It's a positive spin. There's another movie that is, you could call it its evil twin. How does this movie uh, obviously affect your life? And that uh, would be The Shining. It's a Beautiful. Mir- okay. Beautiful. Is that I, not a I mirror opposite of? In every every way, the way I see it, he's found a a piece, finally. In a twisted sense. In a twisted sense, I don't like the idea of him going after the wife and the and the child and all that, but at the end, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I can. I definitely. Uh, get a feeling with that. But most of all, it's that um, when he's in the bar, when he's at the bar, he's at a, at a peaceful place at the end. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds like you're actually reading into these things what you really should be. It, it sounds like, you know, your mind is attuned to, to whatever message is trying to be relayed to you, if any. And you know, like like Matt was saying, you've you've made a positive out of a negative, and you know, not to not to uh, you know belittle that in any way, but you've you've made lemons out of lemonade, lemonade out of well, lemons type of no, thing. No, the way I see it, it's like you know, like I said, I've never heard your your program, and this is the truth. Um, I have never, um, I I didn't know you people existed. To tell you the truth, and then I'm I'm doing some dishes, and I'm I've got a little company, and they're in the other room, and I said I'm going to take some time out. I'm going to call these people. I'm going to tell them about this movie. I'm going to tell them about my injury. I'm going to tell them. About, I mean, you'd never know it to look at me. You would never know it. But it's in my heart, like, mm-hmm. and he's dead. He's gone. I still have the movie. I'm injured. He had a spinal injury. A correlation there. I mean, I mean it, there's it, something. It's, it's I don't all... know what it is. You could say, um, oh, uh, coincidental, if you want to put it on that. But I had watched this for years because oh. I love, I love the symphony. I love the music in the background. It's so pleasant. And here's another thing: who uses the music? Is when you call CVS and they put you on hold. That is the same theme that they use in Back in Time. Hmm. Well, it that... took me so long 
that's that it can't be two coincidences, so then there must be a reason behind it. Now, I had ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. But then I listened to the theme and I said, I'm calling CVS all the time because <laughs> I've got this problem, that problem. I've got to know my medication. I've got to know what to do. Should I walk? Should I not walk? Should I, you know, what should I do with a patch? I went from 50 milligrams to 25 milligrams on a pain patch. What should I do? What should I do? And I'm listening to this and I says, oh no, put it on, put it on hold. Pay it, no mind. Don't, it, it's coincidental. And then I put all the pieces. I says, well, maybe it's through a movie. Hmm. Well, maybe you... just a good soul, bad soul, whatever. Are, are you, are your you program, on... I don't know. Are, are you on the <laughs> um, internet at all? Do you have email capability? Um, unfortunately, no, I don't have. Okay, right I'm going to see if I can find uh, maybe a book or, or or someone who can give you a little bit more information than we can in these type of connections, and and we'll get back to you. You know, we'll we'll find a way to get it across to you over the airwaves here. Well, they say go to the powers that be, and uh, I've enjoyed your program. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of it, and we'll talk to you soon. Good evening, around Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Hello? Oh, yeah, you got to hit the on-the-air button. Good evening, around Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Did you push the wrong button again, Tim? <laughs> <sighs> I'm not really that good with the technical stuff. Uh, yeah. Hey, this is really, really weird. This, uh, I mean, with this thing with Christopher Reeve. I, I go walking every day at Fort Phoenix, and uh, I, I ran into a couple <clears throat> that were just admiring the mansions and the scenery, the harbor and all that. And they were from San Diego, and they were asking me if I knew the area. And I said, yeah, I'm from this area. And he says, I want to know about that mansion that was right at the end of the, um, the street. And I said, well, I know I can't afford it. I can tell you that <laughs> about it. But, uh, yeah, I just uh, gave him the two-cent tour and, uh, you know, told him about this and that. And I also mentioned, I said, uh, actor Christopher Reeve owned the house a few houses up. And uh, he said, oh, really? I says, um, he wasn't sure who Christopher Reeve was until I described him more and Superman and all that. And uh, then, um, you know, I went hit my, my way and he went his. And I was um, going out to the, the hurricane dike and just so I go down to the end there and look about, mm -hmm. just enjoy the view. And there's this little harbor tour that's um, in progress, um, and they're in the harbor. And I could hear the, um, the tour guide. Uh, point, you know, uh, announcing, uh, you know, various interest points along the way and, and then he points to a house and he says, and now look at that house right there in the harbor. This is a house that was once owned by Christopher Reeve. So I just find it so strange. And then that woman calls up talking about Christopher Reeve. I'm just wondering if it's like the anniversary of his birthday or, or perhaps the day he got injured. No, no, no. Isn't it weird? Uh, we got we got Matt Costa furiously checking the uh, the internet to see if there's any kind of connection. There. Yeah, no. Usually, when something like that happens, it's it's, it's like a psychic link or something. So uh, we'll just have to do some investigating. But anyway, it's wild, sure. isn't it? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I just thought I'd throw my two cents in. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Talk to you soon. All right. Why don't we take a break? When we come back, we will get into our discussion on UFOs then and now. Our first guest will be Kathleen Martin. 
co-author of Capture the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. We will talk about the Betty and Barney Hill case, the first major abduction case reported by the media. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later on with David Jacobs about UFO cases, UFO abduction cases today. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we're broadcasting to you as we do each and every Saturday night. Do you you think they can hear us in Ditton? They might. Yeah, J.J. Abrams, you might want to give us a call. I think you have to go to the Ditton Bridge. Yeah, (laughs) that big bridge that goes from Stoughton to Ditton, right over the harbor. Yeah, anybody that's seen Fringe, it's not exactly geographically correct, but that's okay. (laughs) All right, well, our guest now is Kathleen Martin. She's a UFO researcher, author, and lecturer. She received formal training as a social worker and educator. She's also a certified hypnotherapist. She received her B.A. degree with honors from the University of New Hampshire and participated in graduate studies and education at the University of Cincinnati and UNH. She's a member of the Alpha Kappa Delta Sociology Honor Society. During her 15 years as an educator, she innovated, designed, and implemented model educational programs. She also held a a supervisory position coordinating training and evaluating education staff. Additionally, she taught adult education classes on UFO and abduction history, and for 10 years, Kathy served on the MUFON Board of Directors as the Director of Field Investigator Training. And we talked to her a few weeks ago, along with Stan Friedman, about their book, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, and we're going to talk more about that tonight with our guest, Kathy Martin. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. We are so glad that you could come back and talk with us here on what is essentially the anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. Yes, it is. And what what happens in your family when when you get to the to the anniversary of the of the abduction? Do, do, does everybody start talking about it? Does it start coming up in conversation more? No, it doesn't. Really? No, um, we usually just pass by and and don't even remember it. <laughs> Unless we call you up and say, "Hey, you want to come on on the anniversary and talk about?" It? Right. <laughs> it, now we talked before about you know the effect that it had on on Betty and Barney's life, but how did it affect everybody else in the family going forward? Was there a stigma attached with being, you know, related to the Hills, or were people really just curious about what it was that happened to them? Well, I think that uh, it depends upon the the individual. Mm-hmm. For for some people, uh, there was a stigma. My youngest brother, for example. Uh, was bullied in school. Uh, this was around 1966 or 1967 after the interrupted journey was released and Betty and Barney uh, had started to talk about their experience. They actually went to my brother's high school uh, and and spoke about their experience and then my brother was teased and beaten up because of it. But uh, for, for other people in the family, there was certainly no stigma. There were people who were uh, very interested in, in hearing about their story. And I think I was in college at the time, and I 
I think that back in college I did talk about it, and, and I did talk about it to friends throughout my life. Uh, however, in my professional life, I didn't talk about it. But my very intelligent friends who were curious and young and in college were, were very interested in the Betty and Barney Hill UFO case. Is this something that we see, though, in, in abduction cases, that people are reluctant to come forward because they may be able to handle the slings and arrows that might come at them, but they're concerned about what the, the legacy would be for their family to have to deal with. Uh, yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. And, you know, Betty and Barney never intended to come forward either. It was only through a violation of confidentiality that their story was ever made public. And then they came forward after it had been made public. And to me, I mean, I always look back at, at this case and say, say to myself, you know, it's, it's the most credible out of any case that I've ever heard about because, well, it's the, it's the first. Yeah. And to, to have just come up with this stuff out of the blue uh, would have been, you know, highly creative for, for one thing. And, and it would have been probably something that, you know, Betty and Barney had enough going on in their life that they didn't need to sit down and concoct a great big UFO hoax for whatever reason. You have to look at Betty and Barney's character as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, Barney worked for the post office. He was a retired uh, or had been in the military uh, during World War II. His military records say he was of excellent character. He worked for the post office. He was also very active in the community, as was Betty. They were both uh, in the NAACP. Barney was the legal redress. He was also on the regional board. He was appointed by the governor of New Hampshire to serve on the advisory committee for the U.S. Civil Rights Commission and for the Office of Economic Opportunity. He was also the first executive director of the Rockingham County Community Action Program. They were both very politically active and very active in their church as well. These, you know, look at the character of these people. They're not people who would make this sort of thing up. And they seem to be uh, very enlightened people as well, uh, obviously socially, but yes, just it seemed like overall they were very enlightened. And that might have been one of the reasons why uh, the the abductors had an interest in them. Well, I'm not so sure that the, the abductors knew what they were selecting when they, when they so? happened to pick them up. Betty and Barney were just driving on Route 3, which was the main north-south route uh, through New Hampshire back in 1961, and there were hardly any other cars on the road. It was the off-season. And uh, it was very sparsely populated up there at that time anyway. And, you know, Betty and Barney always thought that they were just sort of plucked off the road because they happened to be there. And they had taken an interest in this UFO as it had come down uh, lower and lower and approached them. And they had actually gotten out of the car to look at it, left the lights on, so this craft saw that the lights were on, probably saw Betty and Barney there looking at them and attracted their attention. See, I, I almost wonder if it was 
kind of from the other angle. I mean, obviously, you knowing Betty and Barney and knowing more of the story than I do uh, might be able to, to speak differently about this. But I look at it as if they were interested in the hills, and that was kind of the perfect time to get them because, you know, there's nobody else around. You can grab a hold of them, do what you need to do, and return them without anybody else being a witness to this. So to me, it's almost like if you if you were interested in the hills, that's the best time to try to get their attention and see how responsive they are to the idea of this ship coming down and, and whatever happens, happens. Well, how do you think that they would have known about the hills? Well, are, are you saying that you think that they might have been abducted previously? I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe they had been uh, selected. I mean... You, you're kind of asking me what I think of what their technology and what their means are. I don't think they're haphazardly uh, just abducting people. I mean, that's just from what I've read, Matt Moniz and, and Kathy yourself, you've done a lot more investigation into this than I have. Yes. But mm -hmm. I would think that it's not really just a random, uh, you know, just grab uh, uh, grab an animal and tag it type of thing. I think it's they, they have particular reasons why they're interested in these people, and that's why you'll see a lot of common themes run in some of these abductees anyway. Well, the researchers have found that people who have been abducted off the road uh, oftentimes had a lifelong history of abduction. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't something that anyone ever looked into with Betty and Barney. And uh, Betty throughout her lifetime insisted that she had been abducted only once. So, you know, it's a good question. Did they try to, re when they put them under hypnosis and they, they tried to regress to some of these memories of that abduction, did they ever ask, at least that you know of, if there had been any previous abduction, or was that question just never come up? That question just never came up. So maybe if they'd done a little bit more digging, I mean, we're just speculating, but maybe, you know, there might have been another incident. That's true. It could possibly have been going on since their childhood, but uh, who knows? We'll never know the answer to that question. It it seems like to me though, like if 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 you wanted to have people that would go and represent the human race to an alien civilization, it seemed like the hills would be pretty good representations of some of the best of mankind. Yes, they would be, and uh, it'd be interesting too because uh, Betty was white and, and Barney was of African-American descent. And uh, so you would be picking up two different races at the same time as well. So if you really wanted to study uh, somebody, maybe that would be a better choice. And uh, you would get two, two separate races instead of just one. Not being uh, disrespectful to to the hills and their relationship but if you look at maybe what one of the goals of these aliens might be uh, and that's if there is the we, we hear the stories about the creation of a hybrid you know alien human race or that that's one of the experiments that they've been conducting and maybe they're looking at kind of how a relationship worked between two different races essentially not on the same scale as aliens and humans but just to see the interaction and how humans responded to the differences Possibly, if they were watching from afar, mm -hmm. you know, if they had some way of tracking Betty and Barney to, to uh, sort of tap into their interpersonal re relations and, and the way that other members of society treated them, that's, uh, you know, that's possible. 
And if they if they weren't looking for the hills in particular, then they got really lucky that they didn't get some New Hampshire swamp Yankee with a, <laughs> a, a pickup truck full of rifles in the back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Barney had a gun with him, too, you know. <laughs> but, but that was only one. It's easy to disarm a guy of one gun compared with a whole uh, gun rack in the back of the, pu- the pickup truck, you know? Well, you know, I bet that they would have been able to disarm... Uh, a guy with a rack of guns and the, the pickup truck just as easily as they did Barney with his <laughs> one gun. True. You know, it seems that they have some kind of ad- advanced technology that uh, we don't have where they're able to uh, take control of a person. Now, in, in the Hill case has kind of developed a, a whole mythology around it from, from those who follow, you know, the idea of abductions from afar. And there's probably been some facts that have gotten misconstrued along the way uh, over the years. Is there anything that really stands out in your mind as something that, you know, it, the way we know it, the way we've heard it, isn't exactly how it went down? Oh, there were <laughs> there were a lot of things, and I wrote about that in my book, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience with Stanton Friedman. And uh, yes, there were there were many many uh, points that. Uh, John Fuller had written about that were not exactly accurate. And then, of course, uh, you know, the story being told over and over again led to more inaccuracy. And then we had uh, skeptics and debunkers who made up their own story about the Hill case, too. And and, uh, certainly people have become very confused with, with that false propaganda added in. Now, one thing that I really want to to stress is that Betty and Barney had a full conscious recollection of a close encounter with a UFO. This craft came within 100 feet of their vehicle. Uh, They stopped. Barney got out and observed it through his binoculars. He saw the uh, figures on board the craft. This was all part of conscious memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a conscious recollection of having this craft hover over the top of their vehicle as they were trying to f- to flee from it, and they heard the buzzing or beeping sounds, code-like buzzing or beeping sounds on the trunk of the car that caused a vibration to pass through the car and pass through their bodies. And started to to cause them to to become very tired when otherwise before that they had been wide awake uh, Barney lost nearly full consciousness at that point although he was driving the car he was obviously being controlled Betty recalled uh, eight miles beyond that point but she recalled seeing the jack-o'-lantern resort in uh, in Woodstock in New Hampshire. So uh, she recalled far more than Barney did. And then it was almost as if the two of them had completely blanked out. She remembered a quick left-hand turn. They had a vague memory of, uh, of a roadblock, but they couldn't remember exactly where that was. They recalled a large, fiery orb in the road. Uh, they couldn't explain that as being the, the setting moon because it was large and it was fiery and it was moving and they weren't moving. And then there was another series of beeping or buzzing sounds on the trunk of the car 
and they suddenly came to full consciousness and started talking again. So uh, the only thing that they didn't remember was the actual abduction itself and being taken on board that craft. And it, it, but Barney had sort of face-to-face -face contact. He's standing in the field and the craft at this point about 50 feet away from him. And he looked right into the eyes of the leader of that craft. And that was full conscious recollection. He knew that when he arrived home. He never forgot that. But un unfortunately what happens, though, is when you enter the, the idea of... Uh you know, hypnotherapy for these recollections, so many people will just quickly jump and say that, you know, obviously they were led in the questioning or, you know, they, they implanted that suggestion into them when they were under hypnosis. Uh, we've had uh, Alan Alves, who's a, a hypnotherapist here locally and who's worked on a number of cases like this, you know, as a police officer and as a hypnotherapist, say, you know, you can't really implant things into somebody's mind like that. You can't really make them believe something that they're not going to want to believe. In terms of the questioning that they went under when they were in hypnosis, how did that questioning go? I mean, how obviously now there's procedures and protocols set up for when you're going to regress a, a possible abductee, but back then they didn't really know how to handle this. No, this was done by Dr. Benjamin Simon. He was a neuropsychiatrist. He set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital to, on Long Island, New York, to treat returning veterans who are suffering from shell shock, what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. He had a tremendously high rate of success in treating soldiers who had not responded to traditional psychotherapy or even psychotherapy with the use of hypnosis. Dr. Simon used regressive hypnosis in order to lift uh, traumatic amnesia and to uh, to help these these returning veterans to return to a normal life, to overcome uh, the trauma that they had suffered during the war, so they were rec they were referred to Dr. Simon for that reason for traumatic amnesia, and he was a skeptic. He did not believe that UFOs were real, and. He actually did make suggestions to Betty and Barney, but those suggestions were leading them away from the idea wow. that they had been abducted. He over and over again said, uh, "For let me give you an example. Uh, Barney uh, was talking about, he was actually reliving this under uh, hypnotic regression, in very deep hypnotic regression. And he had, uh, the car had stalled. There were men in the road. And Barney said, I think that they're, they're the men that I saw in the vehicle in the sky. And uh, he wanted to go for his gun. And, and, you know, he was describing the scene. And Dr. Simon said to him, well, tell me, Barney, who gave you this idea? Was it Walter Webb? Was it Homan and Jackson? These are the original investigators. Mm -hmm. uh, did Betty give you this idea? And, uh, you know, Barney kept saying, no, 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 no one gave me this idea. And Dr. Simon said, well, where did you get this idea from then? And Barney said, Dr. Simon hypnotized me, and he told me to remember, and I remembered. So you can see Dr. Simon was attempting to lead Barney away 
And this is just one example. Over and over again, he did this to Betty and Barney to try to convince them that they didn't really have this experience. Uh, Do you agree with that, that type of questioning? In that regard, I mean, trying to lead them away, or do you think that it's better to not even try to go one way or the other? Well, as a hypnotherapist, you're supposed to remain absolutely neutral. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to be leading them away. But Dr. Simon was not uh, attempting, I don't, I don't think, to to find out what the real story was at that point, because he did, he never believed that they had been abducted. He believed that they had um, had observed a UFO at close range that was all part of their conscious memory. Mm-hmm. But he believed that uh, Barney had absorbed a series of dreams that Betty had had in 1961. Now, in 1961, in September, about 10 to 14 days after their UFO encounter, in the White Mountains, Betty had a series of nightmares. They lasted for five nights. Barney was working nights. He was on the, the graveyard shift at the post office in Boston, so he was not sleeping with her uh, nights. And uh, the dreams were so distressing that she wrote them down and uh, tucked them away in her dresser. They told... Uh, a story of events that she consciously remembered about the UFO sighting. But they led into a UFO abduction, and then at the other end, she remembered uh, it, it was conscious recollection again. Now, the dreams were not dreamt in sequential order. She rearranged them in sequential order. In November of that year, she... Uh, had wrote a, a story out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know how much. I was never able to find the original notes, so we don't know how much of that story was in the notes or if she was remembering the abduction itself at that point. But uh, Dr. Simon believed that Barney had overheard Betty telling other people about these dreams because she had never told him directly and that somehow he had absorbed this information and then had simply retold it under hypnosis. So that was Dr. Simon's hypothesis. And that's what I tested in the book Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. I devoted five chapters to uh, the uh, comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's hypnosis. Paying careful attention to uh, the the part where uh, uh, on board the craft, to specific statements that Betty made and that Barney made that were not in Betty's dreams, and what I found was correlating data that Betty and Barney both told Doctor Simon, but that information was not in Betty's dreams. That led me to believe it was a real experience and not a fantasy. Well, now, you know, looking forward uh, from that case and, and into the cases that you've studied further on, how did that kind of shape 
the future of these abduction cases. You see a lot of the same similarities in what happened to future abductees. Uh, do you see a lot of kind of copycat reports where sometimes they were able to be debunked and people are trying to just say, oh, yeah, you know, they, I kind of remolded what happened to the hills and made up my own experience? Well, it's hard to tell whether... Um, <laughs> Some people have remolded it and, and attributed what happened to the hills to their own experience. But what I look for and what other investigators look for is physical evidence and uh, circumstantial evidence as well. So, you know, we have to look at the case of, say, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker in 1973 in Pascagoula, Mississippi where they were fishing uh, near the shipyard where they worked. It's about 7 o'clock at night, and uh, a craft came down. And that craft uh, abducted him. Three figures floated out toward them. Betty and Barney didn't mention floating. Uh, they mentioned uh, sort of a hobbling kind of walk, not a human gait. Uh, so uh, this was a little different. And also, uh, what Hickson and Parker described was different from what Betty and Barney described in terms of the physical characteristics of the beings. But the craft looked the same, and the examination that they underwent was somewhat similar. Um, and they were taken to a local hospital and uh, to uh, Keesler Air Force Base, where they were examined and interrogated. And everyone who has investigated this case believes it's re it is real, from, from the original investigators that I have talked to. Then you go to 1975, you have Travis Walton. Mm -hmm. Well, the people who abducted Travis Walton from the Sitgreaves National Forest uh, near Snowflake, Arizona, looked very, very similar to the ones that Betty and Barney described. And uh, he no, uh, talked about a device being put over his chest. Charlie Hickson, Calvin Parker talked about a device putting, being put over their chest. Um, the metallic disc was very similar to what Betty and Barney described and to what... Uh, Charlie and Calvin des described. So, you know, we see some uh, correlating data there. Uh, in Travis Walton's case, uh, he experienced head pain and eye pain. He wasn't able to focus. And other people who were abducted at about the same time also reported or, or experienced the same sort of thing. Now, you know, there were several witnesses to travel Travis Walton's case. There were five crew members who passed uh, polygraph tests, and uh, Tra Travis failed his first polygraph test, but he was so upset uh, that it was, it was thrown out. But in 1976, he passed a polygraph test. So... Uh, you know, most people in the abduction field believe that Travis Walton really was abducted. Mm -hmm. Then we go on to uh, Stanford, Kentucky abductions that happened in January 1976. 
and these were three women, Elaine Thomas, Louise Smith, and Mona Stafford, and it was Mona's 36th birthday. So the three women got together. They went out to dinner. They were uh, returning home after having a very pleasant time when they saw what they thought was a plane coming in and possibly crashing. Now, Barney also thought that that was going on when the, when the craft descended very rapidly toward him on his first stop. Now, what happened to these women was that the craft came closer and closer. It was a metallic disc, too, dome top, red lights. Um, Betty and Barney reported a red light on each side of the craft. It, uh, Louise, who was driving the car, lost control. The, the, uh, the speedometer said that it was going 85 miles an hour. Mona attempted to help her steer the car. It was totally out of control. Um, Louise took her foot off the accelerator, and it still accelerated to 90, degree, to 90 uh, miles per hour. Uh, the sorry. next thing they knew... Say, I'm sorry to have to cut you off, Kathy. Oh, okay. we're, up, we're up against the news. All right. So but definitely we'll, we'll have you back on real soon, and we can talk more about some of these cases. Okay. All right. The book is called Capture the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. It's by Stanton Friedman and, of course, our guest tonight, Kathleen Marden. We'll be right back with more UFOs then and now here on Spooky South Coast. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? What's happening, man? What's happening? Spooky South Good evening and welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Mac Asta and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are in the midst of our big UFOs Then and Now program. UFO abductions Then and Now. Correct myself here. I came up with the title and I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, we are talking about, first we spoke with Kathleen Martin in the first hour about the Betty and Barney Hill case. And in a little bit we will talk to Dr. David Jacobs about some of the current cases and, and his work in the field of UFO abduction. If you want to check out his website, it's ufoabduction.com. And if you want to find out more about Kathy or her book, uh, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, you can go to kathleenmartin.googlepages.com. That's linked up on spookysouthcoast.com. But right now, let's just get a little weird. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. What's so wonderful? Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the Week in Weird. Now, right, our first story comes from the Washington Times. Half of all Americans believe they are protected by guardian angels, 
One-fifth say they've heard God speak to them. One-quarter say they have witnessed miraculous healings. 16% say they've received one. And 8% say they pray in tongues, according to a survey released Thursday by Baylor University. The wide-ranging survey of uh, 1,648 adults who were asked 350 questions on their religious practices last fall reveals a significant majority who are comfortable with the supernatural. Uh, according to Rodney Stark, co-director of Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, mystical experiences are widespread. He said he would have guessed 15% instead of 55, referring to the 55% who claimed angelic protection. This is the taboo subject in American religion. No one studies it, but there is a lot of it out there. Well, people do study it. He's just not aware of them. We've had them on this show. <laughs> The survey, which has a margin of error of four percentage points, also revealed that theological liberals who are more apt to believe in the paranormal and the occult, haunted houses, UFOs, communicating with the dead, and astrology, all the good stuff we talk about here on Spooky South Coast, than do conservatives. Women, 35%. Blacks, 41%. Those younger than 40, I'm sorry, those younger than 30, 40%. Democrats, 40%. And singles who are cohabitating, 49%. We can do a whole show on that. We're more likely to believe, the survey said, the survey also ranked church attendance at 36% of the populace, about 8 percentage points lower than similar surveys by pollster George Gallup, but more than the low 20th percentile suggested by other polls. So uh, there you have it. The belief in angels and miraculous healings and God, all that is up. And church attendance is at 36%. 36% of this country goes to some sort of church? I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> that might be an inflated number. That's just my theory. I, I just, I'll, I'm a football writer, and I look at some of the TV ratings <laughs> for these football games, and and nobody can be in church on Sunday if they're drawing these mega ratings for Sunday football games, unless they just get out really quick. Mm. They don't go have breakfast at some local diner or something. All if right. they TiVo uh, things, psychic does diner? that count? No, I don't. They don't count TiVo in in television ratings. Okay. Which is, you know, if that was the case, Ghost Hunters would be through the roof. Because everybody I know, you know, they're out investigating while it's on. They come home and they watch it later. Okay. All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us? All right. A judge has decided a law banning saggy pants in his town is unconstitutional after a teenager spent a night in jail on accusations he exposed too much underwear. Julie's Heart 17 was charged last week after an officer said he spotted the teenager riding his bicycle with four to five inches of his blue and black boxer shorts revealed. Hart's public defender, Carol Bickerstaff, urged a judge Monday to strike down the sagging pants law, telling him, Your Honor, we now have fashion police. Circuit Judge Paul Moyle ruled, ruled that the law was unconstitutional based on limited facts of the case. Technically, however, the charge hasn't been dropped yet. A new arraignment awaits Hart on October 5th. Voters in Riviera Beach approved the law in, the, in March. A first offense for sagging pants carries a $150 fine or community service, and habitu habitual offenders face the possibility of jail time. Bickerstaff said she want, wants the city to drop the law regardless of whether anyone dislikes the low-riding pants. And that's stories from the AP. All I'm saying is if there's a story about a guy walking around with his pants too low, I don't want the judge's name to be Moyle. <laughs> Yeah, just <laughs> coming coming from the culture I come from. I don't want a moil to have anything to do with my pants are flying low. Uh, you know, you think that's weird. Speaking of uh, showing too much 
uh, in the Nether regions. Yes. While, while Matt Moniz reads his story, I want you to Google search for uh, Chris Cooley playbook photo. Okay. That's C-O-O-L-E-Y. Chris Cooley playbook photo. Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? Yeah. From the left leader. More responses to sightings of orange light, lighted UFOs near uh, Luth have been pouring in to the leader. With some wondering if recent UFO activity is connected to Large Hadron Collider experiment in Geneva. Large Hadron Collider, LHC, is the world's largest and most powerful particle accelerator, intended to smash protons together in the hope of learning more about the Big Bang Theory. It was turned on to much international press and interest last week, despite some scientists calling for the experiment to be stopped, in fear that it could lead to a formation of a mini black hole, which would expand and swallow the Earth. Numerous reports from across Europe indicate three orange round lights high in the sky in a triangular formation. Others have reported that the lights are uh, as being in a straight line. David Hine from the, New from the North Yorkshire is adamant such sightings are not sky lanterns after witnesses of some strange lights in the sky near his home. I have seen the orange-red spheres in the sky above Stepton moving in ways no conventional aircraft move, diagonal, vertical, and horizontal movements with no sound and no vapor trails. Definitely not sky lanterns. I think that call that just came in to somebody that might have taken my advice. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of that case, Matt Moniz, we have uh, on the line Joe Prindle, who's calling us from out in the field in Eminence, Kentucky. And uh, we're going to talk to him about some UFO sightings going on there. So why don't we go right to the phones with Joe? All right, Joe, how you doing? I am spooktacular. How are ah, you? Ah, there you go. There you go. We are spectacular as well. So what's been going on out there? Well, um, the other day I did a, my usual weekly search for UFO sightings in the general area where I live and found a report from a case that happened starting September 7th with the activity picking up September 13th through the 15th, uh, about an hour and a half from where we live in Eminence, Kentucky. Um, hour and a half south and uh, it's really impressive because the state director of MUFON has uh, uploaded some photos to the internet which really caught my interest and we came down here trying to observe what has been seen and they are for privacy reasons of the, the person who made the first report keeping the exact location quiet, so mm -hmm. we came down and just thought we would ask a few people, and uh, one individual didn't seem like they wanted to talk too much about it. Uh, the others we asked were actually quite surprised by it and seemed kind of interested. Um, when we were out here, we pretty much canvassed the entire city, every street, uh, we weren't able to find any local law enforcement or anything of that type to ask if any reports had been called in. But unfortunately, the topography of the land here is not conducive to long-range visibility. 
there's a lot of trees, the land rolls and that kind of thing. And one experience we did have, and we're 99% sure it could be debunked, I'll let my dad tell you about that. Sure. Hello. Hello, sir. Uh, what Joe and I observed was, I would say it would have to be probably a satellite. It was way, way up there on first glance. You would think it was a star. But there were two of them traveling in a southerly direction, approximately 9.15, 9.30 this evening. And no strobe lights. They could either be, say, aircraft in tandem, say, of a military. I, I don't know. They were so far, they looked like stars. It looked like two satellites. One, they were miles up, but I'd say it, it looked like they're an inch apart. It was just interesting, but in no way would I claim it to be anything other than probably satellites. That's mm. about that was about it for us. And we have been canvassing this area, as Joe said. We have gone for, oh, since dark. We have been north, south, east, west, up and down every road within a we would branch out at least six miles in every direction scanning the skies but we have observed nothing other than that it was just an interesting observance that's all we can say and generally the people down here don't have a clue so if they're keeping it quiet they're doing a real good job of it well you have a background in aviation do you not did you were you not part of the uh, marine air corps Yes, I was in the second Marine aircraft wing. We had uh, BMA 331. We had A4E Skyhawks, and uh, spent four and a half years in Marine Corps and numerous bases. And I've flown in quite a few aircraft: helicopters, fixed wings, propellers. And I couldn't tell you what those things were way up there, but uh, it had to be aircraft, that's for sure. But I was they just. Were so yeah, I was just making the point. You are a trained observer. It's not like you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it was just just a phenomenon, something uh, I hadn't seen before. Other than it looked like two satellites traveling in tandem, but I've never seen that. Now, what do you think of the photographs that were taken there by the MUFON director and the local resident there? Wow, they were they were pretty impressive. They're really interesting. Impressive. They're very interesting. And and if anybody wants to see them, they're at Alien Casebook dot blogspot dot com. If you go there, you can see all the pictures there, and you can even blow them up really huge, as, as Matt Cost is doing right now as we talk. So um, now, are you guys going to stay out there? Are you going to keep hitting, you know, that area frequently, or are you just going to kind of do your due due diligence and then kind of just wait and see if there's any other reports from people in the area? I believe that's what we'll have to do because, like I say, we have been watching the skies for hours and north, south, east, and west, trying to observe anything. Mm -hmm anything at all and then until we get some more information it would be kind of a hit and miss thing really yeah well it's ufo field for you <laughs> it's yeah. not like ghosts you know you, you can go to the location where a ghost is you That's know right. yeah ufos show up where they want to when they want to all right well we thank you for joining us definitely keep us informed of, of anything that you find out though you bet you we get anything hot we'll pass it along immediately thank you very thank much you. stay safe out there Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is the Prindles out in Eminence, Kentucky, investigating the UFOs that are sighted out there, and, and hopefully if, if they get some stuff and, and you know, we'll, we can link to the uh, 
aliencasebook.blogspot.com site as well, and we'll try and get them up on our site so that people can see what's going on there. Yeah. All right, well, we have a call here. Let's take this real quick, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and talk to Dr. David Jacobs. But good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Hello? Hi, how you doing? Hey, Tim. This is Chris from California. How you doing, man? Hey, great. How are you doing? Good. Big fan, man. Uh, I just wanted to say um, uh, thanks a lot for making that X-Files episode. I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, no problem. And um, you did an awesome job on that Beyond Reality show that you did. Oh, thank you. And uh, I actually had a, a question for Matt Moniz. Yeah, what do you got? Um, I was wondering if you had any um, UFO uh, experiences lately. Lately? Yeah. Have you seen anything interesting or anything like that out, out in the field? I've I've had one interesting thing happen within the past six months. I saw something. I can't say what it was for sure. I'm not going to put it in the UFO. Well, it's UFO. It's UFO if you don't know what it was. Right, but it was. It wasn't long enough, or I, I wasn't close enough for me to definitively say whether it was a known aircraft or an unknown aircraft. It was just an anomalous mm-hmm. light that I couldn't explain. Have, have you I'm, seen anything lately yourself? Uh, no, um, no, not not here in California. Kind of dry. Yeah. It's all right. If aliens um, were going to land anywhere, it'd be out in California. I think. <laughs> um, I actually had another question for you, Tim. Sure. Um, have you have you ever heard of the Wolf Manor in Clovis, California? Uh, I've heard about it, but I haven't really done any uh, digging into it. I know that they did a, a Beyond Reality yeah. event out there. Right, right. Have you been yeah. there yourself? Um, no, I haven't. It's in the next city where I live, but um, I plan on going. And um, I was kind of upset that I missed uh, meeting Taps up in up in. Uh, I guess it was really um, everything was kind of private and no one knew they were, they were coming, so no one got to meet you know Jason and Grant and stuff like that. Well, from all accounts, it was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty well run, and I think that they're going to probably be back there again probably in the near future. So we'll uh, we'll definitely pass it along if we hear from them that they're going to be conducting another uh, another investigation there, another uh, beyond reality event there. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, well, uh, and if you get a chance to go and check it out, report back to us. Let us know how it goes. Uh, I'll do that. All right, thanks. Okay, Steve, talk to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, no problem. You too. All right, thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right, well, uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we will talk to Dr. David M. Jacobs. Uh, you can check out his website, ufoabduction.com, the International Center for Abduction Research. We'll talk to him about some of the current abduct- abduction cases, what's been going on in the last few years, and how things are different from the Betty and Barney Hill case. We'll be right back with more of our UFO abductions then and now, right here on Spooky South Coast. 1420 WBSF, into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Good evening. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and we are talking UFO abductions then and now, and our guest now is Dr. David M. Jacobs. His website is ufoabduction.com. He's an associate professor of history at Temple University in Philadelphia, specializing in 20th century American history and culture, and he's the former director of the American Studies Program. He's also been a UFO researcher for over 40 years, and uh, he's written numerous articles, papers, addresses, and uh, and books as well on UFO 
controversy in America, the UFO phenomenon, secret life, first-hand accounts of UFO abductions, and he's joining us now to talk about just that. David Jacobs is our guest. How are you tonight, Dr. Jacobs? I'm fine. Thanks, Tim. And uh, we're, we're very appreciative of you joining us, and I'll say right now, hopefully we can get you to come back for a full episode sometime, and, and we'll just talk about some of the cases you've investigated over the years, but... What are you seeing now in in terms of UFO abductions? Are we kind of in a period now where we're we're having a lot more reports? Because I seem to be hearing more about them on the internet. I don't know if that's just because people are feeling comfortable about coming forward with their experiences, or is there really like a flap of a, of abductions going on? You know, that question is actually uh, uh, requires a more complicated answer than you think. Okay. Um, the uh, the UFO abduction phenomenon is is intergenerational. That means that if one person is an abductee and marries a person who is not an abductee, for example, and has four kids, the normal genetics do not apply. All four children will be abductees, and when they get married and have kids, they will all be abductees, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, through the generations. So. What happens is that you get a cone-like spreading out in the society of the phenomenon, uh, which would cause one to think that people that, that more abductions are taking place. But, of course, the population is increasing as well, so mm-hmm. more abductions are, in fact, taking place. Now, then there's the other part, and that is the frequency of abductions. And the question is, are the frequency, uh, is the frequency going up? Uh, my sense is that... Uh, they are going up, indeed, especially for women, for various reasons. But um, that's my, my sense of it. At least that's what, what, what people have been reporting to me. So we are uh, in a steadily rising uh, sort of crescendo of abductions uh, uh, for people and, um, and frequency of abductions of people as well. So if, if it is, uh, you know, intergenerational as you said is is there a chance then that you would be able to kind of prepare yourself for being abducted well yes and no uh it it, it all depends on what you mean by by prepare yourself i mean uh, most people are rendered passive they can't uh they can't hide a 44 magnum under their pillow and blow somebody's Mm -hmm. head off who walks into their room uh, they can't uh, stop. They can't fight. They can't say no. They can't. They can't really do anything uh, to prevent abductions. And 90% of the time, they forget what happened to them within seconds. So they know odd things are happening, but but they don't know what they are. Um, uh, what we found, and of course this goes all the way back to Barney and Betty Hill, um, is that uh, people just don't remember. They just plain don't remember. We used to think years ago that it was the trauma of being abducted by beings from another planet or whatever. Um, The evidence for that really doesn't hold and and never did hold. Uh, We held on to that for a while, and and I did too. Uh, This would be an enormously traumatic event, but it it relied on one idea, and the idea was that it was a uh, an adult onset single event, mm-hmm. but in fact, it starts in infancy and goes all the way into old age. And when it happens with frequency, it happens over and over and over again. And uh, consequently, 
uh, you know, by the 200th time, and I know that sounds crazy, but of course the whole subject is, is within that realm. But by that time, you're over the trauma, you know what I mean? You pretty much know the drill, you know what's happening to you, and then you forget it right a- immediately thereafter. So there's still some surprise and some shock, but most of the, the trauma that I found comes from remembering it for the first time. That, that's sort of where the trauma comes from. But, uh, but the fact is, though, that trauma has nothing to do with forgetting. What we're looking at is a neurological manipulation which allows this uh, program to continue in secrecy. And is that done, uh, are we talking surgically, or is there just something that they're able to do to uh, manipulate somebody's you know, electromagnetic field and change their brain waves, or, or is there actually something that's physically done to the brain? Mind if I take that? Uh, I don't mind if, if Dr. Hmm. Jacobs doesn't mind. The, uh, the answer to all of those is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you were going to say, Matt? Is that- uh, well, I was going to go into a little bit of, of uh, how the brain works. The brain stores memory chemically. There mm-hmm. is, there's a certain uh, chemical compounds that initiate a memory and things like that. And when they become permanent, it becomes part of the cell and there's... I can go into the chemistry of it, but most of the listeners would all of a sudden start tuning off. But suffice it to say that if you can interrupt those recent uh, immersions of the chemical onto onto the, the certain cells, you can, in effect, in effect erase that memory. Okay. It, yes, it, that, that is true. Now, it's, it, it's, it's, it's even more subtle than that. Because the memory still lies within them. What it is actually is a neurological interference, in my opinion, um, and this is really an opinion as opposed to state of scientific fact, but uh, it is a a blockage of short-term memory so that while the memory is there, they cannot access it, almost like uh, uh, trying to to get something out of the hard drive and and you can't quite bring it up but it's still there on a hard drive. Um, now, even uh, once it comes into normal memory, it begins to degrade uh, just like normal memories do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that once it's, once it's remembered for the first time, sometimes there's a mixture of false memories, there's a mixture of confabulation, there might even be a little bit of channeling, and uh, it takes a person who's pretty well-versed in, in hypnosis, if I may even talk about that, and, and also in the abduction phenomenon, and uh, to, to try to separate out the signal from the noise and the weed from the chaff. Having said that, some people are just dead-on accurate in everything they say, and other people, it depends on how many times they undergo sort of a session to, to, to remember it. Uh, the first couple of times are always the most difficult, and then it gets easier and easier. Why it gets easier, we don't really know. Uh, but maybe they are in fact changing the the, the chemistry of the brain, or or or, or uh, in some way that, that that it's easier to access. And then there are people who just plain remember things that happen to them, and they don't forget. So there is a little bit of a spectrum. This business about memory is is extremely complicated, and I just wish I knew as much as Matt does about it. Now, other other physical factors uh, from somebody who's been abducted. One thing I've always wondered is if you're, you know, supposedly say abducted at night. And I know that you don't necessarily have to be, but people say that they are. 
More abductions actually, I believe, occurred during twilight and dusk and day than actually night, if I'm not uh, mistaken. That is correct. About 60% of the abduction events that I have looked at, and it's about 1,100 now, uh, happen uh, when a person is not asleep uh, in bed and all that. But for those who do claim to, to be asleep, is, is there any kind of sleep deprivation as a result of this? Because you would think if you're being tested for however long you're gone, for however much missing time you have, that there would be some sort of physical response to that. You have asked a dynamite question. Beautiful. This is uh, a, a, and I wish I could answer that. My sense was that in the hidden world of abductees, sleep deprivation is a significant factor. And I believe that it is. And I think that you're going to find illnesses related to sleep deprivation uh, um, uh, that, uh, that, that, that might occur in higher, higher percentages in abductees than non-abductees. I can't guarantee that, but that's my sense. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we don't, these, these are all money questions. We don't have the money to, to, you know, to, filter, to, to find these things out from physicians and so forth. But, but the point is that I have dealt with people who've been abducted over and over and over and over and over and over again, uh, almost on a nightly basis, and, and they might get two hours of sleep or three or four hours of sleep a night, and then they have a full day the next day, and they tell me they are extremely tired and they're nodding off, you know, when they're when they're at their computer at night and this and that, and I think to myself, this is not right. They should they should, from what they're describing to me, they should be falling asleep at the wheel and crashing into cars and this and that, and it should be an impossible situation, and it isn't. They're tired. There's no doubt about that, but they're not as tired as they should be, and this is something that I've been sort of puzzling over just actually in recent months. Why aren't they more tired than they than they actually should be? Because I, I know that I, I'm, you know... That, that with me, I walk around like a zombie if I don't get at least six and a half hours sleep. But uh, maybe they're just used to it. Maybe their body's adjusted, or else maybe there has been an adjustment made in them that allows them, in some strange way, to get along with less sleep. But that's an excellent, excellent. That, that, that's one of the first times that, that question has ever been asked me. Thank you so much for asking that. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I'm I'm a sleep apnea sufferer myself, so I'm really attuned into you know the idea of sleep and how it can be affected by a lot of these claims and whether or not the sleep deprivation and the sleep apnea can be the cause of some people's claims in in different aspects of the paranormal. Uh, and one thing that I, I was thinking is that maybe the reason why they're so uh, unable to do anything about this abduction, especially while they're, you know, quote-unquote on the table, is because they are in some sort of induced sleep state. Uh, no, that, that's that's not it, really. They're just, they're uh, they're, they're pretty much awake. They know what's but, going I mean, on. Like a physically, uh, you know, a physical sleep state, almost like a sleep paralysis type situation. What's well, called hypnagogic state? Is that not, not quite the hypnagogic, but just something like as if, you know, that you're alert, but your body is in that relaxed state. So you're still getting, I mean, sleep is, you know, whatever, 90%, you know, resting your brain, but they're still getting that physical rest that therefore, you know, they might not be as groggy as they would be normally. Well, it's possible. It's possible. Uh, but, but you have to understand that without the ability to render people passive, so that they can't run, so they can't call the police when something begins to, mm-hmm. to happen, so that they can't wake up their spouse, so they can't, you know, do whatever it is. 
so that when they walk down a hallway, they can't just kick somebody, and 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 that that that's that's critically important, and and they render people passive from a distance. Now, it might just be a distance of of a matter of feet. I don't think it's a distance of light years or anything like that, but um, but they can do that. That means that in some way, they have a neurological development in their brain or, or a neurological um, ability that we do not have where they can control us and we cannot control them. And they can render us passive when, when people lie on a table, even though they're sort of alert and know what's going on. Uh, and, and, and we can't do that to them. And without that ability, there would be no abduction phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And in your experiences and your research, there's never been an incident where somebody wasn't in that state. No, that does happen. Every once in a while, somebody will snap out of it and run down the hall. Okay. I call it the King Kong is loose syndrome, <laughs> and uh, they there is a whole there's a series of procedures to deal with that by by the gray aliens, uh, and and people come in and, and usually render the person passive very quickly. And it's usually not pretty. Right. It it, <laughs> it, it, it sometimes it's not. Sometimes they can just do it from afar. They just say, you know, what. What I discovered back in the in the in the 80s was that um, that these that people have a staring procedures that that beings will come over to them and and stare at them and I'll say well where are they staring and they say well they're looking at me well where are they looking at are they looking at your belly button are they looking at your elbow where are they looking no they're looking at my head well where are they looking at your ear or, or your hair what are they looking at no 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 they're looking at my face and I'll say well are they looking at your nose you know what. No, they're looking. Yeah, they're looking at my eyes, and, I, and I'm looking at them. And I say, "Well, how close are they to you?" And I say, "Well, uh, his forehead is touching mine." And I say, "Well, can you close your eyes?" And they say, "No." I say, "Can you look away? Can you avert your attention?" No. And then the key question is: I found this. I stumbled onto this, having no idea what to say when I first began to hear this 20 years ago. Uh, the first, the key question is, what's going on in your mind while he is doing this? And all sorts of things can go on in their mind. And I began to realize over the years, because I'm a, I'm slow on the uptake, but over the years I began to realize uh, that they are doing things neurologically, primarily through the optic nerve. That is to say, they are using the optic nerve as a conduit to vi- vir- to visit virtually any sort of neurological sites within the brain that they wish to either deal with, to innervate, to change, to whatever it is they are doing it, uh, to whatever it is they want to do. The problem with this theory is that they are doing it just by looking at people. In other words, they, they haven't connected wires or anything like that from their brain to your eyes. Mm-hmm. They have just, they're just doing it that way. I have found this procedure to uh, take place uh, almost every time with virtually every abductee in almost every abduction. Are there, are there any abductees that almost have a, a working relationship with these, you know, captors where they almost, you know, they don't put up a fight and that they're, you know, it's almost like they've come to accept that it's happening and therefore this, the event goes easier for them or is it just the same type of trauma no matter what happens? Well, once again, there, there isn't really a whole lot of trauma in the cases that I, I have looked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is when they first start to remember it, but I, I ask them, well, does this seem familiar or is this totally new and different and like, what, what the heck is going on here? And they'll say to me, no, 
they, I, 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 this is familiar. I, I know what's going on here, you know. And when they when they sort of remember, oh yeah, this has happened to me a million times before. They 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 sort of uh, you know it's it's easier for them to deal with to re- try to remember what's going on. But the, most people, I do get some people who are serious resistors, uh, but it's extremely rare. Uh, I've only had a few who who make it their their business to resist. Most people cannot resist, and it doesn't even occur to them to resist. It's not in their in their concepts. They can't resisting. It's just it, it, it's futile. <laughs> what? It's futile. It is futile, but it's not even futile because it's not even thought of. There's no there's no futility. It's you wouldn't. Why would I mean? It's 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 not a con. It has already their their mind has already been neurologically changed to the point where they're just so passive. They tell me when they walk down a hallway, uh, there's another person, you know, some guy, some woman, whatever, some you know, normal human being is walking towards them with a couple of aliens around them, and they'll say to themselves, they'll say to me, you know, that guy looks like a zombie. <laughs> and I know that the guy who's seeing the person who I'm talking to is looking at her or him and thinking to himself, God, that woman, she looks like a zombie. Mm-hmm. And everybody looks like a zombie, and they're glassy-eyed, they're slack-jawed, and yet they're walking, and they're following directions, and it's just not occurring to them to turn around and grab one by the throat. Although that has happened on occasion. It has happened, and I actually documented one of the cases where that has happened. <laughs> the what 12-year-old was... kid who reached up and grabbed one by the throat, throat. What was their reaction to that? Didn't like it. When that, he right, <laughs> they were not pleased. Um, when that happens, uh, they are they are stern. They say, "No, you shouldn't have done that. That was bad. Don't you should not do that. That is not good." And usually, they keep the person even under more control than before. So, a person might say, like, they really feel out of it now. You know, they're really, really out of it, and, and it actually becomes a little bit more difficult for them to remember at that, after that. But 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 they're given a stern talking to. Is it a, a physical speech, or, or is it kind of com- mental communication? All communication with gray aliens and with anybody else on board a UFO is um, is telepathic, uh, and uh, that's that's right from the beginning. And uh, I know Betty was vague about Betty Hill was vague about that, but but, but we know that that is the case, uh, and and uh, we know that that's the case with all gray aliens. And the reason we know that is because they appear not to have vocal cords nor uh, movable jaws uh, or, or mouths that, that, that would uh, have sounds coming out of them, nor do they appear to be air breathers. So there's a lot of reason to think that, that they don't talk. And you said all communication that's on, on the ship. So is it possible that abductees are communicating with one another there, or are they just in too much of a zombie-like state? No. Sometimes... They usually are sit in silence, and even if they see somebody they know, uh, they there's no communication. Every once in a while there is, and it's usually done telepathically with the other abductee. Uh, odd as that may seem. So I mean, there's no real foolproof techniques for these for these uh, beings because it seems like every once in a while something slips through the cracks. Yeah, every once in a while something does slip through the cracks, but you have to remember that the people who we see are the people who know something is happening to them. 
and the people who don't know anything that's happening to them and still have had a lifetime of abduction activity uh, might, might be in the millions. In other words, we're probably seeing just a very tiny little percentage, maybe maybe a few percentage points of of people who remember things and who actually will get to to serious UFO researchers. Most people cannot um, would not attach what's happening to them uh, to the abduction phenomenon. They might think that it's other things within the paranormal, that is to say, the ghosts or, or, or traveling on the astral plane or seeing deceased relatives or seeing religious figures or, or something like that. Or uh, They have sort of a, a way of, of, of slotting this within, a, within a, a more generally acceptable paradigm than being abducted by, by uh, aliens. You know, that's, that's out of the paradigm to a large extent. So... Um, so they know those things are happening to them, but they'll just never attach it to to abductions. So we only see the people who, number one, know those things are happening, and number two, can attach it to abductions, and then are curious as to whether it fits or not, and will and will come to us. So what I'm saying ultimately is that the program of secrecy, the program of uh, of neurological manipulation of people, is unbelievably successful. And the theories are out there that, you know, our government, our military is aware that these are happening and that they're, you know, keeping it under wraps for their own purposes. And, you know, we talk about reverse engineering some of their technology and being able to utilize their ships and, you know, their electronics. But maybe the ultimate goal is to try to harness whatever that mental capability is that they have, that telepathy, and try and find a way to, you know, turn that on. Right. Well, you're talking to one of the few researchers who... Who does not find uh, government conspiracy theories uh, to be real compelling in terms of the evidence, and I, and certainly not reverse engineering, which which most most people in the serious UFO research community just think is is just sort of the soft underbelly of, of popular culture, and mm-hmm. a lot of the claims made have been made by people of dubious reputation. But let's just say that 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 the government does know about UFOs, and that they are covering it up. And let's just say that, that, that they've got a study going and, and all the rest of that. So, you know, they're covering up something big behind them and all that. My answer is, God, I hope that's true. That would be the best thing ever. That would be, uh, that would be a dream come true. That would be wonderful. I want that because then at least I know that somebody's paying attention to it. Somebody <laughs> is studying it. Somebody is spending money on it. Somebody's doing research. Yes, I want that. Well, my my only question is if they really were reverse engineering alien technology, I just want to know one thing. They use regular or they use Phillips head? Well, I've heard that they only use Phillips head up in the, on the planet Vortec. And, and everything's in metric system, so that's yes, why we course. can't understand it. No, well, certainly. That's why the government's suppressing the metric system. <laughs> I think you're onto something here. It's quite possible. So, so now as we as we go forward now into the 21st century, and, and as you said, you know, as the generations span out, we're going to see more of these cases. I mean, is it going to get to the point where it's like Disney World, where everybody has to go at least once? Or is it going to be, you know, as more people become aware of it, will it be harder for them to continue this program? Uh, I, I wish I could answer that question. Um, I mean, obviously, the fact that we're talking about it so much, it's not really curbing the the abductions any in any manner. No. It has no effect whatsoever on the abduction phenomenon whatsoever. But you've got to remember that um, the amount of serious abduction researchers 
is, is it's really small. There's only a small number of, of people doing this. It, the, and it's still considered sort of more popular culture and science fiction than anything else. And people who uh, are who are involved with funding agencies, for example, who who, who generate grants and, and, and academic institutions and scientists and the National Institute of Science and all the rest of that stuff, uh, all consider this thing, this subject, to be totally nonsense. Uh, there's actually been a retreat, not only with abductions but with UFOs as well, a retreat in recent years by the academic and scientific communities from interest in it uh, to not just disinterest but to sort of aggressive hostility to the subject. Uh, and, of course, I, I'm at Temple University. I'm, I'm, I've been in academics, uh, you know, all of my adult life. And um, uh, I've, never, I've never seen it as bad as it is now. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just an awful situation. And I, I, I do not, I, I, I just don't see a rosy future. I, I hope I'm wrong about this in terms of, of studying the subject and, and getting people interested in it. And, uh, and not just lay people like me, but, but, but serious people who, you know, who can put together teams of individuals who can do serious research on this subject. And even then, the question is, and the question you're asking, and, and the dynamite question is, so what? Mm-hmm. So what if they can do that? Are they, in fact, going to affect the phenomenon at all, even if they know what's going on? So they can get a couple of people and prevent them from being abducted. But we know that the abduction phenomenon is huge. It's global. It's, 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 it's greater than, than, than sightings of abductees, I mean, sightings of UFOs, probably. It's, it's just huge. We've known that for a very long time. So if we can stop, let's just say, a thousand abductions, is it going to affect the program that we see as a whole? And the answer is, well, probably not. All right, well, we spoke with David Jacobs. He is part of the International Center for Abduction Research. UFOabduction.com is the website, and, and we would definitely love to have you come back sometime for a full show when we can really get into this and maybe talk to some, some abductees that, that we know and that we've had uh, discussions with and, and bring them on as well. That sounds good to me. All right, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, thanks Tim and Matt. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. And, of course, we will be back next week with our guest next week, Psychic Tiffany. Tiffany Johnson will be joining us. Um, and uh, possibly Constantinos. Yes, and, and that's just going to be crazy. I mean, if you thought we're goofy, imagine when you get the three of us and the two of them on the phone. Oh, All hell's going to break loose. But Tiffany <laughs> will be here to do readings for you. Every once in a while, we like to have an episode where we allow the listeners to, to call in and get readings from from a psychic, and this will be one of those chances. So you definitely want to make sure that you tune in next Saturday night at 10 o'clock when we will have Tiffany Johnson here to take your calls. So start thinking about you know what you want to know about your life and what you want to talk to her about, and you have until next week. So until then, from Matt Costa, from Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that Patriots football on AM 1420. Easy. And what you have just heard was not fiction, although... In many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen.